What's really going on, everybody? Back after a long little break. This is episode number 72. Uh, before we get into our very special guest, be sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms. That is WRGOPod on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube where you can watch all of our videos in full. You can also be sure uh, to check us out on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Finally, be sure to check out our brand new merch that is still on sale. You can check that out at what's really going on pod.com slash shop. You see Henry has the merch on as we speak. So now we have the pleasure of being joined uh, by Destiny Hodges. Uh, this episode first came about because we were seeking about, uh, we had a little clip about climate change and its importance in the black community, but we wanted to bring on an expert to talk about that. Uh, and there was no one else better to do that than you, Destiny. So I will let you kind of introduce yourself and kind of give our listeners a little bit of an insight uh, to kind of what you do, where you work and kind of the scope of work that you do. Yeah, first, it's always great to be, you know, in the presence of fellow bison. As I speak now, the, the tower at Howard is ringing at Founders. <laughs> I live on Georgia Avenue. Um, so thank you for having me. Always great to be in good company. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Destiny Hodges. I'm 21 years old. I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, but based in Washington, D.C. because I go to Howard. Um, I will be a senior at Howard after the summer. Um, I really focus on film, journalism, and environmental liberation. Um, I am the assistant producer and marketing coordinator for The Coolest Show podcast, um, which comes out of Hip Hop Caucus, I uh, think 100%. I am also the founder and co-executive director of Generation Green, um, which is an organization I started a little over a year ago now. Um, and on top of that, I organize on Howard University's campus to develop the Howard University Student Sustainability Committee. So I'm doing a lot <laughs> at school and everything. Um, but I say all that to say that my work is centered around Black people um, and how we are impacted by climate change um, and the environment. And when I say environment, I'm using the environmental justice definition and kind of expanding on it to mean the complex interaction of the political, the social, the economic, the biological, the geographical conditions that surround us and how that shapes our lives and how we're able to survive and how we're able to thrive and how we're able to communicate with one another. Um, and that means that our bodies as Black people are also environments. So, you know, what's being fed into us on the daily? How are we taking care of ourselves? What is the inability to do that due to the systems of oppression that surround us? Um, and really taking a deep dive into how has the system of global racial capitalism just gotten us here, um, to be honest? And what do we need to do as Black people to, to get free, to be liberated? I think the question is always, you know, how does it free us? And yeah. what is being free if there's no planet? <laughs> I um, and I'm glad you were like so detailed in your answer because it definitely directs us to our first question we have because we have a lot of interest and clearly they're centered around like climate change, like helping black people become more aware and involved. And I guess we will want to know, like, was there a specific event or something that like first brought you to climate activism and policy work? Yeah. So first I'll say policy is not my forte. I'm not a policy wonk. Um, <laughs> I see policy as one of many avenues to get to where we got to go. Um, in terms of what got me interested, I grew up in the country. 
Um, you know, like I said, I'm from Alabama. I said Birmingham, but I'm really from a smaller town where my family's from. I grew up in Birmingham, though, so I claim it. Um, and I was always outdoors. I loved animals, grew up around horses, ran outside when it rained and stuff. And so I watched National Geographic and Animal Planet every day. I kid you not. Um, I love documentaries, uh, Big Cat Diaries, and I had a love for just nature and animals and I know it's like that's not environment but you know in the context of black people but I really grew up outside and I loved it and I love storytelling I love film writing poetry journalism and and watching all the stuff on Animal Planet National Geographic I'm like where do people at <laughs> in general and then I'm like where do black folks at because <laughs> you know they're all over the world they're showing Africa the Caribbean and coral reefs and and ecosystems and I'm like but don't those ecosystems impact the people um and so I knew you know in high school especially that I wanted to shift my work on documentary film and, and newspaper and writing to telling black stories as it pertains to climate and environment and then when I got to college at Howard I learned oh there's a word for what I'm referencing, which is called environmental justice. Um, and I didn't know that. And so that led me down a whole path of like really understanding the breakdown, what that means. And now that's led me my work to expand upon that to environmental liberation, um, which is something we've developed at the organization Generation Green to really kind of encompass what I first answered with, tying it all together with how did we get here and how throughout the African diaspora has this system impacted black people um, how does climate change impact Black people? And how do we get up out of this? So with that being said, how can environmental justice organizations and policies, even though I know you mentioned you don't really focus on policy, how can those type of organizations and those type of conversations attract more Black voices? Because these type of conversations aren't really, are, I won't say won't be lit, aren't necessarily led by Black people, but Black people are, I feel like, left out of the conversation when it comes to, you know, figureheads that are talking about environmental justice. So what can these organizations from your point of view do to get more Black voices involved? There is a long historical answer to that that I'm not going to give, um, but I will say, quick and short, step out of the way. Um, just get out the way, because Black folks Indigenous folks primarily have been doing this work and we are the blueprint for the work. We are the blueprint for an environmentalist. We are the ideal environmentalist, um, to be honest. And this, the movement, which consists of many of those organizations you could be referencing, has co-opted that and has created a culture of imposter syndrome to where we don't even identify with, with environmentalism. We don't even identify with going outdoors because for some of us, the outdoors has been so traumatic through, through history and even up to today. Um, and so I think it's first, those organizations, especially the people who you mainly think of, you know, when you think of environmentalism, um, like the Big Greens, who I'm not gonna name specifically, but they need to step out of the way because many of those organizations have a very racist history founded in eugenics and white supremacy, um, such as John Muir, Theodore Roosevelt, the whole name, they were eugenicists. Um, and many of those organizations aren't changing what they're doing. They might say it publicly, but they're not. And there's a lot of harm taking place in those spaces um, when it pertains to black folks and other people of color. So step out of the way first and then let the, the black folks who are doing the work do the work and get the funding. Um, because there's plenty of black organizations already doing the work like Black Millennials for Flint, like We Act for Environmental Justice out of New York. 
I could go on and on and on, like Hip Hop Caucus, like Generation Green, et cetera. And we've been doing the work because we've had to, it's our livelihood. Um, and the way this movement is set up is a barrier to Black people fighting for their lives and fighting for their liberation. Because again, what good is it to be free without a planet, without access to clean water, um, without access to healthcare, healthy food, affordable food, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So step out the way and let the folks that have been doing the work do the work. And when our work and how we do it becomes the norm, becomes what's looked to, then we can easily engage our communities. Um, and we are engaging our communities, but right now it's, it's not marketed to us. It doesn't look like it's us because it's so dominated by white supremacy. And I think um, it's kind of your point in terms of like being dominated by white supremacy. I think that, of course, we just had Trump who was a white supremacist. And I think that you know, outside, you know, I think the casual person would probably know like, oh, Green New Deal or Paris Climate Accord, like, you know, that Trump got out of that. But what was kind of like the true impact of Trump's climate policy? Because I think, you know, we can all see that Trump is a racist, but I think the actual details of what he's done um, in many policy spaces, but I'm sure especially in your area of work, like what can you kind of give us a sense of kind of like what he actually did in terms of like, you know, kind of rolling stuff back or just having harmful policy? Yeah, so Trump, <laughs> um, Trump rolled back well over 100 environmental policies, many of which were put in the Obama administration. Um, so you got like, you know, the clean power plan, a whole bunch of stuff to be brief, ranging from uh, fossil fuels all the way to, you know, do communities, um, do developers even have to engage with communities when they come in and develop things. We saw a lot of that happen in COVID, especially with new development, trying to fast track it in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, so Trump's administration rollback in anything you can think of from, you know, opening up land for, for oil extraction and, and selling it, which thankfully wasn't that successful, uh, approving pipelines. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> the Trump administration really messed it up and even kicked out over half of the EPA didn't even want to see the EPA exist anymore. Um, and so when we talk about the impact that that has on the Black community and on communities of color, the laws that were put in place to protect us, I'm not saying they were the greatest laws, and by all means, we need more um, to protect us from such harmful pollutants, facilities, developers, companies, etc., cetera, um, were just snatched, many of, um, or depleted you know, like dampened in many ways. And so that was Trump's impact to keep it brief. <laughs> he saw his impact on everything else. And so if you think his impact on the economy, on COVID response and relief, on anything was trash, it's the exact same for climate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like being that we have a new administration and like as we're speaking there four months into their term, um, how do you feel this administration has you know, taking a different approach or have they even like done anything to bring equitable, like equity, equity, excuse me, to the environmental space? You know, there's pros and cons, I will say. Um, because did we vote for Biden because we wanted to or because we <laughs> So I, I, I'll start with that, you know, before we get into what did and didn't happen. It's like, hmm, well, um, to be honest, there are a lot of milestones, I will say, with just the cabinet, you know, um, it, it's incredible. Like we have a Black EPA administrator 
a black man from North Carolina. That's never happened. Um, never, never have we had that. You know, so that's a big step. The um, Department of Interior, an indigenous woman, never have we had that. And you might think, how does that relate to climate? But they're all connected, you know? Um, even economics, transportation, DOE, EPA, they're all interconnected, especially when it comes to climate. And so the cabinet and, and the staff in this administration is extremely diverse um, and extremely well-versed in environmental justice. Um, even the CEQ um, in the White House. Like it, it's, it's incredible, I will say, the staff that is on board. I will be interested to see what they do, but it is incredible, <laughs> the staff that is there. That, that's a milestone. I said, basically you're saying they look good, but they ain't doing nothing. We will see. <laughs> what would you what would you like them to what if you could pick um maybe three or four things that you would definitely like for them to implement within the four years that they're in office? Like what are some things you would like to see? So first and foremost, fossil fuels gotta go off the top. Um, there's no question about it. We cannot continue. It's a bad business plan. Like just logically, it doesn't add up, you know, economically, feasibly. It doesn't add up. So fossil fuels have to go, have to be phased out entirely. And while there's, you know, a lot of rah, rah, rah and talk, there's several pipelines being built right now and going on, even one operating illegally, um, that the Biden administration is not acting fast enough on, like all the talk it was doing, you know, in during election season. So fossil fuels got to go. That's one. Um, we need climate education, like vast. There's a lot wrong with our education system in general. So, I mean, there's other things on that note, but climate education for sure, that is cultural, um, historical and, and relevant, especially to frontline communities. I had no idea growing up, you know, aside from me watching Animal Planet National Geographic, I heard nothing really about climate change in school. And I was in the South, so the education was already messed up thanks to the Daughters of the Confederacy rewriting our history books. Um, but I didn't learn anything about climate and folks absolutely need to know, like, why do they have asthma? You know, even environmental justice. Where where does that come from? What does that mean? You got asthma? Are you dropping <laughs> no. Gems. no, you're dropping gems. You're dropping, <laughs> you're dropping gems. Well, I was like, yes. No, I hear you because like, I mean, I personally have like, just like bad sinuses, terrible sinuses, and then I have bronchitis. Um, but to the point yeah. of asthma and like black people and like living facilities and how we're just kind of predisposed to like certain health issues because of the lackluster living facilities that, you know, whatever. So you, like you're just dropping gems and I appreciate it. Uh, and with that, like I did kind of cut in. Did you want to finish? Cause I, that brought a question to mind. I'll just wrap that little piece and you can definitely ask your question um, because connecting to exactly what you just said and going back to how all these things interconnect, we look at the instance of Freddie Gray, you know, who was killed by police. Mm -hmm. He had lead poisoning in his house growing up in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is going on in society? How is this affecting black people? How does all this link up? Um, and so climate and environmental justice education is a really, really big thing because not only do folks not understand like, hey, if, if we don't fix this, we will not exist anymore as a human race. <laughs> you know, that's like number, obviously. And then in the context of black people, like what you just said, you know, why do you have bronchitis? Um, why do so many black families have asthma and hypertension, high blood, you know, so on and so forth. And many of these questions are answered by, well, what's in their environment? What are they exposed to consistently? 
And I've seen some incredible things happen, even just in my classes at Howard or even with some high school students from um, division, not division one, wow, title one. <laughs> schools <laughs> title one schools um kind of come and and take an environmental studies course through a program and they were like oh my god I am living in an environmental justice community I didn't even know it like and now I can understand and break it down and imagine if that education happened in like middle school you know in, in elementary school younger people have people would have a much different understanding of what it is that is going on around them and how that Im impacts them but what's your question <laughs> no, there was actually one thing um that i'll follow up on this is like not in our doc but it just hit me i think that you hit on something that i'm that i've always been curious in and kind of like how you talked about pipelines and their effect on indigenous communities and i think that that's something that doesn't really get discussed a lot only because you know they're just not sadly in our society they're just indigenous people and communities and tribal lands and tribal natives are not a very front-facing culture and our media doesn't really focus on them. And I think what you're talking about is kind of like how environmental policy and action is often at odds with the economy and for profit. Um, can you just kind of talk a little bit about that kind of friction? Because it does seem like in a lot of cases, um, the need for profits or the need to, you know, cut spending, i.e. Flint, are, it's kind of like lock and step, right? Where there's always a financial decision to either make more money or save more money that often impacts, you know, black or brown folks or and indigenous folks. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that friction? Yes. Hello, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> we live in a capitalist society. Uh, profit over people is the biggest rule. I think that's like the number one rule in capitalism. Uh, so that's immediately like the response to that. But then, and that's why economic decisions like that take priority over people's lives and their health, their well-being, their futures, you know, et cetera. Um, in terms of pipelines and indigenous folks and, and people of color, um, yeah, I mean, we as people have become so disconnected um, from the planet and from one another through these systems, through white supremacy, that, you know, when you think about a culture such as indigenous folks or, or even black folks, you know, who have their own indigeneity that I won't get into, um, we have a historic connection to land, period. You know, ancestors, practices, culture, there's a connection to land. So for someone, specifically a neoliberal state, to put a pipeline through your ancestral land, through the land that gives you water, food, clothes, shelter, et cetera, and to not even consider or really ask you when you're also supposed to be a sovereign nation, mm -hmm. come on, that just causes yeah. several treaties. I'm not even getting into specific ones. I'm speaking generally because there's several pipelines like Dakota Access, so on and so forth, that there are treaties being broken. It's not even legal. And it's a complete disrespect and regard for life. And then on the flip side, because many folks also to add on to what you're saying, don't associate Black folks with pipelines with these fights either. Right now in Memphis, the Bahalia pipeline is trying to be built through a predominantly Black community, low-income community. And if it's built successfully, it will more than likely contaminate their drinking water. You know, so that's currently going on. So it's it's all connected. And I, we have to really think about our connection to land, to place, to people and each other and how we treat each other. And it's obvious that in this system of global racial capitalism, 
they don't care about us. <laughs> they care about profit and they'll do whatever they have to do to get that. Um, and if that means putting a pipeline on your land, I mean, we saw what just happened with the oil shortage. Yeah. In, yeah and they got <laughs> hacked. It's kind of comical. I'm not going to hold It's not funny, but it's funny that they got hacked. Um, and allegedly and look how people were out of oil you know couldn't even fill up their cars but if we had a situation where we were you know had phased out fossil fuels which could have happened quite a long time ago because several presidents throughout history have been talking about solar panels and solar power vehicles as early as the 1950s but they wanted to hush hush it to make profit with fossil fuel companies um, we could have been a totally different situation and people's lives could have been spared just like what happened in Texas it go it's just on and on and on but profit over people is the short answer and that's what's prioritized i do have a question though you mentioned and this might be simple to you but you mentioned a lot of people don't even know that they live in environmental justice communities can you break down just what that is for our listeners because i know i i don't know if i live in environmental justice community so it'd be great to just get like a simple breakdown on what that is yeah, um, so I think I'll answer it by, I don't know, let's do like a little live exercise, I guess. <laughs> um, so where where are you all from? Where are you all based? I'm in New York. I'm in Harlem area. I'm okay. in Go ahead. Oh. Noah's in DC and Henry's in Atlanta. Okay, 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 okay. So wherever you're at or wherever you're from, and you might not know the answer to this, but maybe this is some homework afterwards to check out what surrounds you you know so is there an incinerator is there um a gas plant is there like from where i'm from there's a paper mill um is there a, a really huge highway like atlanta i know y'all got a lot going on so i don't know where you are in atlanta but <laughs> is there a really big highway that has a lot of truck <laughs> y'all always got a lot going on that's speaking a bad way atlanta's atlanta atl um, but is there a really big highway, like, you know, that's next, next to your home, next to your community or next to your family or friends community that has a lot of truck traffic? I mean, think about that pollution. Um, is there a rail yard next to you? You know, is there a, a chemical, a petrochemical facility nearby? Um, these, these are examples. Is your waterway contaminated? Is your wastewater uh, treated properly? Because I think about people in Lowndes County, Alabama, who have sewage water on their lawns because they're in a rural area that has not been developed with a, a septic system and they have hookworm, which is considered a third world disease. Um, so, you know, these, these are some questions that kind of get there. Like what is in your water? Have you ever tested it? Do you know if there's lead paint in your house? You know, how, how old are the buildings in your neighborhood? How old is your home? Depending on that answer to that question, it's very likely that you might have lead paint in there especially if you live in a city like Baltimore, Baltimore or another place that has really, really old infrastructure. Um, so these are just some questions that, you know, to think about. Does everybody in your family have asthma? Does everybody in your family have cancer? In your neighborhood, is there a, a trend of several people dying at a certain age of cancer, different types of cancer? But that might be an indication that there's, you know, something going on, whether it be pollution in the water, um, et cetera. So these are just some things. Do you have access to healthy food? Like, is that something you can easily go or do you have to drive 30, 40 minutes, two hours to a grocery store, to a hospital? So wow, I'm literally over here like, um, do I, do I, do I? 
Yeah, so I mean, think about it because most people, I mean, we're not taught to think about that. And it's just the norm for, for many of us growing up. And so we just become accustomed to it. But it's very seriously impacting us, our health and our lives and all of those around us. So, I mean, if there's a rail yard, like what is that rail yard taking back and forth every day? Look, though, so being that you kind of just broke everything down in terms of, you know, what an environment or community looks like. And being that you've kind of went through different crises of how, you know, black and brown people are affected in their like communities, what do you consider one of the biggest environmental threats that our community face like today and how can we fight against it? Oh, that's hard. That's, it's not hard, but I'm like, God, what's the most? <laughs> um, I, I have to be quite honest. And some people might say, what? Global racial capitalism is our biggest threat. I will just say it there. And then y'all are probably like, that's too broad. But to be honest, that's it. That's, and if you want me to expand more, I can, but. I would say, what is global racial capitalism? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Cedric J. Johnson, who is an author, I'd recommend his book, Black Marxism, breaks it down very, very well. I'm not you clicking the pin. Um, and, and several other people, um, I have tried to think of other books. But anyways, so I think we have to think about capitalism. So are you aware of what capitalism is? I mean, I can break that down too. Okay, so yeah. racial capitalism and capitalism are not two separate things. They're the exact same thing because Capitalism in general was built simultaneously with racism and racism was used as basically um, a point to be like, this is okay. You can do this because black people and people who are more melanated are inferior. And so therefore we can exploit them for their labor, their resources, et cetera. And it doesn't matter. So capitalism and racial capitalism are very much intertwined. You can't separate them because of how it started and how it developed. Um, ranging from, you know, the genocide of indigenous people, the transatlantic slave trade, the Arab and Indian Ocean slave trade, and boom, where we are today, where you can get an iPhone in like 20 minutes delivered to your house, um, an Amazon Prime delivery, you know, and those workers don't even have health care or et cetera, et cetera. So that's just capitalism. Go ahead. Right, so that's racial capitalism slash capitalism, all the same. The reason I say global racial capitalism is because that's not just here in the United States. It is a global system um, that depends on the exploitation of melanated people, primarily black folks, because in the proximity to whiteness, we are at the opposite end of that spectrum. Um, so that is what global racial capitalism is, is the global exploitation of melanated people to line the pockets of, of wealthy white families, primarily men. Hey, put, put that on a board. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, no, we're going to have to get that book. Could you mention it again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we did. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> it's by Cedric J. Johnson. It's called Black Marxism. Anybody who wants an introduction to capitalism, global racial capitalism, or just what that means for Black people and Black people's thoughts and theories about that, I would definitely suggest reading that book. People often reference Karl Marx, 
But Karl Marx grew up in Europe and analyzed Europe, which is mostly a homogenous society, which did not have race as a factor. So therefore, he's Cedric J. Johnson is a really great person to look to for a Black analysis of capitalism. We definitely, definitely um, appreciate that because for me, like you mentioned Karl Marx and that's the name that I'm more familiar with. Yeah, same, same. So, uh, I think you're the first person on our podcast to ever give our listeners homework and reading assignments. So we appreciate right. it. Um, so kind of to transition to just our last question, I think that you had mentioned, I think, you know, to Henry and all of us and Mackenzie, like, the work is the most important thing. And I think for other folks to get out of the way for us to do the work, but also communicate what that work is, um, you know, how can people support that work? I think that's the most important thing is that it's not, it shouldn't just be, you know, you doing this amazing work by yourself. So how can people support the work that you're doing? And do you have kind of advice or organizations to follow and watch out for? Um, because this clearly will take, you know, not only us as black people together, but it's also going to take white people and it's going to take a literally, it's literally going to take a community. So, you know, how can people support the work that you're doing? I think that's, that's a very broad question, but if you kind of had a couple of, you know, things that people can do locally or just kind of in their community, um, what would you say those things are? Yeah. So I'll speak to supporting the work in general and specifically the work that I do. So in general to support the work, Funding, 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 um, and resources, whether that be networks, uh, knowledge, um, et cetera, you name it, in-kind services. It, it's absolutely necessary because as organizers, a lot of us are out here doing this work with two or three jobs, going to school like myself, um, or a lot of people don't have healthcare. You know, it, it's, it's a lot. So funding goes a long way. I might be up here you know, preaching and spewing anti-capitalism, but the reality is that we're still in the system and that is how it works and that's how we have to survive. So funding is number one. Um, get out of the way, like I mentioned earlier. And um, as far as in your own community, I guess really think through kind of some of those questions that I mentioned, you know, and I'm not trying to give homework, but that was the best way for me to explain it is to really think about like, hmm, what is going on around me? Cause I mean, so many of us like walk through life day to day, just doing the same norm consistently, and very rarely think about how we're being impacted by what surrounds us. Um, so that's like, just just think about that is even a, a way to start. It's like, hmm, okay, well, let me do something about that. If if that's your your role and your line of work, everybody, you know, I ain't said this for everybody. <laughs> um, and um, other ways to support especially young people. Like I said, I'm 21. There's some amazing black young folks out here doing all types of work. But again, because of the climate movement and it's white supremacy, we are not shown and therefore we are not funded. We are not resourced and we are not given platforms. Um, so support black folks doing this work, especially black young people. Um, in terms of how you can support the work that I do, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the founder and co-executive director of Generation Green. We are trying to build a movement and environmental liberation of Black people across the African diaspora um, to look at environments through our lens and define that for ourselves and do the work to liberate us across the diaspora with an understanding of basically everything I've broken down <laughs> kind of on this, this interview. Um, you can find us at gen-green.org. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at generation underscore underscore green 
Um, same on Twitter, um, generation underscore underscore G. And for Hip Hop Caucus, um, The Coolest Show specifically, which I'm the assistant producer of, you can go to thecoolestshow.com, check out our podcast. It'll break down anything you can think of when it comes to climate change, ranging from elected officials to um, organizers, to even artists, creators, so on and so forth, which really touches on climate and culture. Um, in terms of Howard, um, Howard University Student Sustainability Committee, you can hit us up by email at HUSSC19 and on Instagram. I feel like I just dropped a, a phone book. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing was, I was literally about to ask, I was like, if Generation Green has a Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, could you talk about donations? So like, you know, in, 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 in Umar voice, but okay. you know, how, how, do you, how do you receive money? Say less. Um, okay, on Cash App, we are the dollar sign Generation Green. Feel free to hit us. We appreciate that. Um, if you want to go, you know, through credit card, through a secure site, I don't blame you. Go to gen-green-org/donate, and those are the best ways to to hit our pockets, which we really, really appreciate. Because it's hard out here. I'm really not just saying that. Especially as Black youth, especially as Black young radical youth in a whitewash movement to get funded to do this work. There it is. Well, I think uh, on behalf of us and all of our listeners, Destiny, we really appreciate you um, for frankly just shedding light on a topic that doesn't get enough talk, it doesn't get enough conversation. And for you to do the amazing work you do, we thank you. Uh, and you know, we look forward to hopefully having, for us being on guests on your podcast and you know all of your future work. So that concludes uh, episode number 72 of the What's Really Going On podcast. Once again, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WRGOPod. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you will be able to watch this video in full. You can also like, listen, subscribe, share, tell your mom on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Finally, be sure to check out our merch that Henry is once again wearing that celebrates change agents, including our future hopeful president and future governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Oh, she getting that. Kip out of here, man. Period. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody.